Moses is up on this mountain, inside this big, awesome ball of fire and glory. And he's been up there for 40 days, and he's getting detailed instructions how to build this tabernacle. This amazing picture of how God is going to literally come down and dwell with them. Now, the other thing you must understand about the tabernacle is that in every other culture, though they have tabernacles and tents that are very similar to Israel's structure, they're always up on the top of mountains or really far away from the cities. So if they're in a city, they're up on a mountain. So if you go to Greece and you see all their temples, they're always high up on mountains or Acropolises. And so, or they're way out in the desert and it's a journey out. What's the point? Every single time you encounter a temple where the gods dwell, they're always far removed from the people. Because the gods don't live with people because the gods don't care about you. But what's really interesting is God is commanding the tabernacle to be built right in the middle of Israel's nation. He tells them to build it flat on the ground and not far removed. He tells the Levites to get as close to the courtyard fence yard they can get. And they're completely surrounded. And then everybody else's tent is to get as close as possible. And we'll talk about that arrangement when we get to numbers. And so basically what God is saying is, I'm going to come down and dwell right there with you in your midst on the same horizontal level with you and right with you. I'm going to become one with you. This is why John says the word became flesh and the word tabernacled among us. He's just doing what his father does. And then Hebrews tells us that Christ stands in our midst is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And so what God is communicating is, I'm going to actually literally come down. Yes, only certain people have direct access to me and only one time a year, but I'm still going to be right there. You're going to be 100 feet away from this giant pillar of fire. And you can walk into the tabernacle anytime that you want with an animal sacrifice. And as he's painting this beautiful picture, the people begin to think, wow, this Moses guy has been around away for a long time. Maybe he's dead. Let's build a golden calf. And you need to understand how horrific God is doing something that he's never done for anybody. I'm going to come and dwell with you. I'm going to give you the ability to have direct access to me. Everybody from every single family is going to have access to me, not just one tribe like every other nation. I gave you all the money to build this thing. And they're going to erect a golden calf. So chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Get up, make us gods that will go up before us. As for this fellow Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So, you know, this guy who just brought us out here in the middle of nowhere and then abandoned us up on the mountain, who knows where he is? Aaron, you be our leader now. Now, here's what's interesting. Moses put Aaron in charge. And now Aaron's going to screw it all up. So Aaron said to them, Break off the gold earrings that are on your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So that all the people broke off the gold earrings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he accepted the gold from them and fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molten calf. Then they said, These are the gods, O Israel, 
who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now here's the sad part. Where did they get the jewelry to make the golden calf? From Egypt. Who gave them the money from Egypt? What were they supposed to do with the money? Build a tabernacle. They were given money by God to build a house for God so that he could live with them. Instead, they take their donation to God to build an idol that will separate them from God. We do the same thing. We take our energy and our resources and we invest in things that do not encourage our relationship with God. They actually create idols and sin and divide us. But this is what Moses wants you to see. This is where they got the money. And so Aaron tells them, let's build a golden calf. Now two things are happening. Aaron builds a golden calf, and once it's built, they, the people, say, Here, O Israel, are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. Now they just fashioned a golden calf. Remember in the plague of the death of the domestic animals? The most worshipped animal in all of Egypt was the Apis bull. And it had the horns with the solar disk on it. And they built a golden calf with a solar disk in it. Where did they get this image? From Egypt. Now the bull was a very common image that represented the power of gods. So some have suggested that they might have actually been building an image to represent Yahweh. Because Aaron also says, tomorrow we're going to have a festival to Yahweh. So they say, here are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And Aaron says, and we will worship Yahweh through this image tomorrow. So the question is, what's going on? Is this idolatry or is this a false image? It doesn't matter. Each one, both of them are forbidden by God. And here's the other thing, too, is the bowls were often used to be a pedestal for the gods. So they could be thinking instead of, there's two possibilities. They've completely built a completely rival god or they've built their own version of an Ark of the Covenant for the glory of God to rest upon as a pedestal. But it's not how God prescribed it. It's a pagan god. But either way, and the things here, we don't know whether gods is plural here or singular, but most scholars believe that it's plural. Now, you have to understand how grievous this is. We're used to the story. We've heard it a million times. We've seen it in movies, Sunday school classes. It kind of gets familiar to us. We miss the offensiveness of it all. The offensiveness of this is not only what they're doing as God is like laying out this really cool like picture for them being together, but this would be the equivalent of you walking into church one day and your pastor's got a statue of Buddha up on the and he says, Behold, congregation, the God who died for your sins on the cross. That is horrific. That's basically what they're saying. The gods that he just defeated to save them, the gods that enslaved them, they now give credit for God's salvation to those gods. So they didn't know about the, these, these instructions when they did this? We don't know... Is it possible they know that Moses is going up to get instructions for a tabernacle? Yes. Are they aware of how exactly the tabernacle is designed? No. But here's the other thing you must understand. Did they already hear the Ten Commandments from God's own mouth? 
Did they already enter the covenant? Did they participate in the end of the covenant through animal sacrifices? Do they know better? Yes. Did they agree that they would not do this? Yes. So they may not know about the tabernacle, but they are not ignorant. They are not ignorant. Was the pillar of fire? It's still there. I mean, it's on the mountain. Remember, the whole mountain is burning. But they think Moses has died in God's presence, and he's not coming back. So they're sinning while they're doing this. Now, why does Aaron do this? Why do you build a golden image and then you say, hey, let's worship Yahweh this way? And notice when Moses comes down and says, how did, how did you do this, Moses? Moses says, not my fault, it's their fault. It could be that he feared the people. See, we commit a lot of sins because we want people's acceptance of us, but at the same time, we want God's acceptance. The problem is not that Aaron has walked away from God completely. The problem is he's tried to please God and please the people simultaneously. He's tried to serve two masters. And so this isn't a guy who's completely abandoned Yahweh. This is a man who has devalued his relationship with Yahweh by trying to have another relationship at the same time. And so he builds this golden calf. So Aaron says, let's worship Yahweh. Now, back up the mountain. God's in the middle of commanding this. Verse 7, it says, Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go quickly descend, because your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have acted corruptly. Corruptly. Now that might be kind of like your mom saying, Your son has just... But there is truth to that. Because when your one parent says, Your son has just done this, what their meaning is that children of mine don't act that way because I don't act that way. Now, that could be total hypocrisy, but that's what you're communicating. People that come from my body don't act that way. That's exactly what God is saying. By the fact that they're acting contrary to my covenant means that they're not my people. They're not acting like my people. They're acting more like you, Moses, a human, a sinner. And so God, in a way, has made it very clear that these are not his people. Now, he's not completely rejecting them yet, but he is making clear that they're not acting the way that his people act. They have quickly turned aside. It only took them 40 days. From the way that I commanded them, and they have made for themselves a molten calf, and have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. And these are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up in the land of Egypt. Then Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people. Look at what the stiff-necked people they are. So now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I can destroy them and I will make of them from you a great nation. So God basically says, Moses, they are no longer my people. They have violated the covenant. I'm going to kill them all and I'm going to start over with my promises with you. Now, you have to realize how serious this is. Now, is God overly harsh, flippant, condemning to do this? No. Now, that seems harsh to us. Like, wow, they commit one sin and he's just going to wipe them all out. There's two reasons why he has every right to do this. First, he's God. And once I've talked about this many times, but we've lost the appreciation for the fact that the only reason we have any life at all is because he gave it to us. 
So therefore, he has every right to take it away from us. And every day that we've been alive is a gift that we were not responsible for and is directly from him. He has every right to put you in the land. He has every right to take you out of the land. Just by the mere fact that we're sinners, he has every right to kill us. That's number two. The mere fact that we're just already sinners, he has the right to kill us at any moment. That's what Jesus said. They said, Jesus, Jesus, when that tower fell down and killed a bunch of people, is that because God is judging them? And Jesus says, you should be surprised that stuff doesn't like that doesn't happen more often. Meaning like you guys all deserve to die every single day. The fact that you live another day without a tower killing you is all the grace of God that you don't deserve. The third reason is this. They agreed to the covenant. They said, we agree to obey these commandments. And if we don't, you can kill us. And they signed their name in blood, so to speak. This would be like you signing a contract and saying, if I don't pay my monthly mortgage, you can take my house away from me. And when the bank comes and takes your house from you, you scream foul play. It's like you signed the contract. And that's exactly what they've done. So this is God's every right as God, his every right as a judge, and his every right as a contract that they sign. And he says they need to die according to the law of the universe and according to the law of the Mosaic Covenant that they just entered into. And the only person who isn't doing this is you. Not literally, but that's what he says. Now go away from me, Moses, because I'm going to kill them. Now here's what's interesting. But Moses, verse 11, sought the favor of Yahweh, his God, and said, O Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Does Moses walk away? He doesn't. Now here's the thing. Does God, he's not asking Moses permission. He does not need Moses' permission to do this. He is inviting Moses to make intercession. Now let me say this right now, right off the bat. Well, let me read this first, so we're all on the same page. I know you've all read it because you're good little students, but whom you have brought from the land of Egypt and with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say for the evil he has led them out? Like you only led them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger. Relent, which is another way of saying repent, of this evil against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and told them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have spoken about. I will give to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. Then Yahweh relented over his, the evil that he had said that he would do to the people. Did God just change his mind because Moses presented a really good argument that God didn't think about? Now, first, let me say this. I have no idea what is really going on here. Nobody does. It is complete arrogance to say that we fully understand what's going on here. No one does. No one. No scholar does. Nobody goes on. There are things about God that are just so mysterious and way beyond what we can fathom that we cannot just come up with this nice little three-point little theological box to explain the complicated matter of God's justice and mercy that are somehow happening right here. Is it easy to look at God and like condemn him and hate him and think that he's emotionally erratic 
and easily changing his mind and flying off the handle? Yes. But here's the thing. Could God have chosen not to reveal this to us? Yet he decides to complicate our theology by putting this story in here. So the first thing I want to say is we have no idea what's really going on here. This is mysterious. Second, God refuses to let you put him in a box. He reveals something about his character that he is not embarrassed about. He doesn't blush. He doesn't hide it from you. And he doesn't try to simplify it and explaining it to you. And he just puts it there and says, deal with it. Any time that you are tempted to put him in this nice little loving father box or this mean God box or whatever, this destroys it. And no matter what three or four points you come up with to try to simplify it, there's always something that doesn't quite fit because there's just something way more going on with this cosmic God than we can ever hope. And so I would like to just say, on the surface, there is going to be tension here. This will not be completely satisfied, but just deal with it. You're not God. And if you think your puny mind can comprehend the complexity of who God is, then you've committed a sin. And so I will say that this is one of those things where God just says, you cannot box me. There is no Nicene Creed that can simplify this. I am beyond anything that you can fathom or imagine. Deal with it. I am a God who has every right to kill them. I am a God that did change my mind, and I am a God that showed them mercy. How you reconcile that? It is reconcilable, just not with this brain in this life. Now, to that, he still revealed it, and he gave his character throughout the Bible, and so I will attempt, but I will attempt with great hesitancy, fear of God, and no absolute statements. Okay, but this is what it seems. Look, I've taken almost every view that there is. But this is, to me, the most satisfactory one to reach in the consistent character of God. I believe I'm right because it's my opinion. We always think our opinion is right. But I'm not willing to die for my opinion and say that's it because at the same time, my opinion is just a little scratching the surface of who God is in this complexity. Some people have taught that God literally does not know the future and Moses presented a very good argument and changed God's mind, and this is called open theism. Some people say that God is not changing his mind. He's just kind of playing an ignorant game with Moses to see what's going on, and he's just kind of acting like that. Neither one is satisfactory to me. I don't like the idea that God just kind of messes with Moses to see what would happen, and it's very clear without Scripture that God has every idea what the future is. And he's, but then the means, the middle ground means that there is a relationship here. What is God doing? He is inviting Moses into intercession. Does God have every right to kill them? Is he true to his character as a just God to kill them? Is he true to the covenant to kill them? Yes. But he invites Moses to intercede, and to that Moses presents three arguments. First, Moses asks, why would Yahweh undo his great act of deliverance by just killing them now? Why would you go through all this effort of saving your people just to kill them when they mess up? They deserve to die in Egypt. They deserve to never be saved. Yet if you save them, 
as a people, despite their deserving of death, then why would their sin cause you to kill them now? Your character is you're a God of mercy, God. You're a God of mercy. That's what you showed in Egypt. That's what you should show now. Second, why should you give the Egyptians an opportunity to defame you and call you evil? If this is about a testimony to other people, then the Egyptians would say, wow, he's a psychopath that just saves people to kill them. That doesn't win Egyptians to you. That doesn't bless the world. That doesn't bring people in. And third, would Yahweh go back on his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You made a promise to take these people. Now, technically, God is honoring his promise by making Moses into a great nation because Moses is a descendant. But here's the other thing. There's also a promise to Judah will produce from chapter 49 of Genesis the king who will bring the kingdom of God. If he starts over with Moses, there is no Judah. Now, I guarantee you that God can make that prophecy work out somehow in some way if he still kills them all. But God goes down. Here's the thing. This isn't Moses presenting really good arguments that God hadn't thought about. This isn't Moses saying, you're not acting true to your character. This is Moses praying. Lord, you have every right to kill them. But I'm appealing to your mercy as a God who saved them when they didn't deserve it. So save them now when they don't deserve it. I am appealing to your promises that yes, technically you could honor those promises through me, but I'm asking you to honor those promises to all of them too. And I'm appealing to your reputation of winning more people. Basically, what Moses is praying is the Abrahamic covenant. Please allow your blessings to go to all people, whether they deserve it or not. And God says, okay. Now, did God change his mind? Yeah. Now, that's kind of scary, right? And for a long time, I refused to accept that because I was really bothered by that. But here's the reality. Isn't that what you're hoping for every single time you pray? Isn't that what you're invited into? What was what, what the point of prayer? If God has already determined everything that's going to happen, why do, you, why do we even pray? Just so that you can go through the motions? Now listen, we see this in the prophets too. God says, if you repent, Nineveh, I will not destroy you. But if you repent, I will destroy you. Does God clearly lay out two options? Are there any other options than those two? But who determines which one happens? So anyway, has God said, I am God and I can do whatever I want. And there are only two options and two options only. And you have no sovereignty to choose anything out of those two options. But at the same time, I am giving you human responsibility to choose whatever one you want. And the future is determined by your actions. Yes. In a way, is God really changing his mind there. 
If he says, I'm going to destroy Nineveh unless you repent, and Nineveh repents, and he says, now I'm not going to destroy you. Yes, now listen, I, don't, I still don't like the changing his mind idea, but I'm just using that phrase because I don't know what other phrase to use. So be aware, like, I'm not comfortable with that phrase, but I have not found anything in the human language <laughs> to communicate that. So be aware that what I'm really trying to communicate is you're going to be judged for your sins, or you can repent and be saved. And by that, I mean God is changing his mind, not in that he's dead set on one thing. It's like, oh, okay, never mind, I'm not going to do that. But he's clearly laid out two options, and which option we benefit from has everything to do with our actions. And there are times where Christ says, you have not because you ask not, which means were there things that God could give you but chose not to because you didn't ask? And because you asked for them, now you have them. Which means your prayer determines whether you have them or not. And so what is Moses doing here? Is he trying to pick an option that God has not thought of? No. Because what Moses is saying is, you have every right to destroy them because that's the covenant. That's Nineveh. You'll be destroyed if you sin. But you've demonstrated in the past that your character is also a character that if people repent, then you'll save them. There's always been the two options. So God, right now we are the nation that is being judged for our sins, but I'm repenting on behalf of the nation. Will you forgive them? And God says, yes. I don't, I know that, I don't even begin to say that that is a comprehensive, totally satisfactory answer. But over and over and over again through the Bible, we see a God laying out two options, justice or mercy, and it's all dependent upon our repentance. And we also see times where one person repents and allows the whole nation. When David and the entire city of Jerusalem is being destroyed by a plague because of the sins of David, knows that the whole city is under plague because of David's sins. And then when David repents, the entire city is spared. So we've seen many examples where entire people groups who do not repent are spared from judgment because one person repents. Is that not how you were spared from judgment? Because one man stepped in your behalf and repented on your behalf and took the penalty. And what Moses is becoming is a foreshadowing of your high priest. He's a foreshadowing. Is not now how Israel is going to be saved on the Day of Atonement? Because one guy goes into the temple and he sacrifices on behalf of the nation, yet the whole nation is not doing it. And yet the whole nation is spared. And so the best thing I can say is God has clearly demonstrated his just, he's clearly demonstrated his mercy, and Moses entering into it and saying, I know that you have every right to be just, and I know that you haven't given us an option, but I'm really hoping that there's an option on the table, spare them. And what does God do? He says, okay. Because your prayer does affect God. And we have to believe that our prayer affects God, because if it doesn't, then you're really just praying for your own benefit, and that's not a relationship. If I'm saying I love you to my wife all the time, and it's just for my own benefit, and it will never affect her or change her in any kind of way, then what's the point of bringing her flowers and making dinners and saying I love you and getting her gifts if it's not going to change her in any kind of way? That's relationships. They're reciprocal. It's complicated. And so here's the thing. Theologically, that gets really messy. A divine God of the entire universe who's willing to be affected by our prayers or our actions, our repentance. Yes. 
That's how amazing God is. He's allowing the theology of him to get confusing and messy and muddy for the sake of having a relationship with us. Because every single time that a divine God of the universe steps into a relationship with scumbags like us that are fickle and stupid, it's going to get complicated. Just like the minute you enter into a marriage with somebody, it automatically gets messy and complicated. It's way easier to be single and alone. It's way easier. But the minute you bring another sinner to the picture, it automatically gets messy. It's way easier to stay home and worship God all by yourself. The minute you come to church, it gets messy. And God knows that, and yet he's willing to do it. And so what Moses is saying is, please forgive them. And God says, okay. Once again, does God have a right to be just? Yes. But can he be just and merciful at the same time? No, we already talked about that. But here's what I want you to get from this. If there's one thing, if anything, if I screwed it all up or I've miscommunicated or whatever, this is one thing that I do think is totally clear. No matter how much God has every right to judge them, and his character of as a just God demands that he judge them and condemn them, knows how quickly he gives them mercy. It's almost like God is saying, I am a just God, but first and foremost, I am a God of love and mercy. And it doesn't take much for God to just say, okay, and you go throughout the entire Bible and look how quickly God just immediately shows mercy to people. People just pray one prayer. We got, when you get to Ahab, Ahab has built two golden calves and he's sacrificing all these people. And the prophet comes and says, you're going to be condemned. And he says, kill God and kill the prophet. And God shrivels up his hand. And Ahab says, please forgive me. And God immediately restores him. Why in the world does that guy deserve to be restored when he's just asking to be healed, but he's not repenting of his sins? Because God is a merciful God. And it doesn't take much for you to experience his mercy. Why in the world would a God die for you on the cross after all the crap of our human history and everything that's going to come after the cross? And if there's one thing that you get from this passage is be aware of just how quickly God says, I want to forgive you. I want to show you mercy. I have every right to wipe you out. But it only took one prayer for me to say, I love you and I'll forgive you. That's the character of God. And the atheist gets you to focus on the fact that God is changing his mind the fact that he wants to kill them, the fact that he will bring a plague. But don't miss the fact of how easy it was to get the forgiveness of God. Because is that not the tabernacle? You're going to be destroyed. And all you have to do is walk with an animal that's pathetic. And yet God says, I forgive you. And I want you to see over and over again, though, though your sin is a constant theme in the Bible, and you're constantly separated from it, you're constantly under the wrath of God, and we're sinners in the hands of an angry God, the first sermon of Jonathan Edwards. The most dominant theme, though, is the second sermon of Jonathan Edwards, though, the grace of God is ever-flowing. And it doesn't take much to be forgiven. And it doesn't, I mean, really think about it. An animal sacrifice is what allows you to escape eternal damnation for another day or another month. Really? That's all it took is that faith and that thing because God so quickly wants to forgive you. The other thing you must understand is that forgiveness does not mean that you're exempt from consequences. Because there is a judgment coming, just not a rejection. And so God says, I will forgive them. Now, are there any questions? And now listen, I'm not trying to wrap this up in a nice, neat little bow, because I can't. 
But this is my best attempt to try to maintain that balance between a God who is completely sovereign and knows everything, but at the same time a God who's not easily just persuaded, like, oh my gosh, that's a great argument, Moses. I never thought about that. I think God, all Moses is saying is, I see your character. And I'm appealing to that side of you. I'm not making points that you've never heard of. I'm just saying, I have seen your character, God, and I'm appealing to that side. What do you do with the justice and the mercy? What do you do with the justice and mercy? Because what this means is, do they deserve to die according to the Mosaic Covenant? Do they all die? Which means, did the justice of God get demonstrated there? No. If you deserve to die, and he doesn't kill you, was he just? No. Because remember, you cannot have mercy and justice at the same time. Now what does that do? The character of God is merciful and loving, and it pours out on them, and you're like, yes! But then you're like, wait a minute, though. I want to know that this God will actually punish evil when evil comes in my life, and he's not. And they'll commit another sin. And every single generation will keep violating the covenant, and what will he not do every single generation? He will not wipe them out. And every generation that goes by, he will kill a few unrepentant people here and there, kings and prophets and that, but the nation as a whole will not get wiped out like they deserve to be justly wiped out according to the covenant. And you can keep saying that the justice is not there. Over and over and over again, the injustice of God begins to build up as the sins of the people build up and there is no judgment on those sins. Their sin builds up and the lack of justice builds up all for the sake of the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Yet you can assassinate his character for being an unjust God. And then when he promises you in the prophets that he's going to bring justice in the world, you can say, no, you're not. I haven't seen that. Now we do on little small scales with individual sins, but we don't see it on a global sense. So that brings us to Romans 3. Romans 3.21. Now if you know Romans well, chapters 1 and 2 is basically, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck, you're all deserving to die. And then chapter 3, he puts you under the condemnation of God. There are, for then all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and you're condemned. So he's made it very clear that you're all deserving to die. You're all condemned. And then one, the unspoken opponent, can say, yeah, but we haven't all died. Where's the justice of God in that? To which he responds and says this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God which is tested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed, namely the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So they're all free from that condemnation through Christ. But God publicly displayed Him at His death as the mercy seat accessible, remember the Ark of the Covenant, through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance, meaning long-suffering, putting up with you, had passed over the sins previously committed, and this was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just 
and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus Christ's faithfulness. So basically what Paul is saying is he has overlooked all the sins of the people in the past and the fact that they should be judged and condemned. But in his forbearance, he put up with that sin, he put up with that lack of justice, and he poured out his justice on who? Christ. Christ took the penalty of all those generational violations of the Mosaic Covenant. Why? When is Israel going to die for their sins of the golden calf? On the cross. This is the point that Paul is making in Romans 3. They don't get punished for the golden calf, but that sin needs to be paid for. So God overlooked that sin and his forbearance. He put up with it until Christ came along and then he poured out all of his cosmic wrath on Christ. And every sin that you've ever committed, every violation of the law, every generation that should have been wiped off the face of the earth, that all got poured out on Christ. And the eternal God of the universe got wiped out off the face of the earth. That's where all of God's justice got poured out. It built up over all those years and he poured it out. But who didn't die? You and I. And is that not the mercy of God? There's only one time in all of human history that God can be just and merciful, and that is the cross. And so the cross is where justice and mercy intersect and exist simultaneously. And so God poured out all of his justice and wrath, and you all died in Christ like you should have. But because Christ died on your behalf, you all lived and experienced the mercy of God. And that's why Paul will go on later and say, should, should we sin all the more so grace can abound? Because the more we sin, the more cross there is, so to speak. This is really cool. And Paul says, no, because you misunderstood the cross completely and you're defiling the cross. And this should make you want to meet the standard of God all the more. Does this kind of make sense? And this is where Christ becomes our intercessor. And this is the best. This is not a complete. Listen, that kind of in, in, that complicates it. Like, really? Okay, why a cross? Why did it have to be a cross, God? Why did it have to be a death and resurrection? Couldn't it be at other things? Yeah, but that's what he did. So in some ways it answers the question, but it also complicates it even more because then it's like, but why did it have to be that? And I don't know. It just is. And so this is God's answer to that lack of justice. Every time you read the Bible and every time somebody's sinning and every time God forgives them and every time God forgives you, be reminded that that justice is already met. And this is why people like Corey Tenboom can find comfort in the fact that the guy who killed her family, so to speak, and her in the Nazi concentration camps, the wrath has already been poured out. And when you realize that your sins are just as much met on the cross, then his is too. And this not only allows you to reconcile the justice and the mercy of God, but allows you to also reconcile the mercy and the justice and the people's lives that offend you. Because when you realize that you should be dead and yet you're not, 
then that should allow you to extend that same thing to them. And that's the power of the cross. And that's just scratching the surface. So once again, I'm not claiming to this to be the most comprehensive, best picture. I'm just saying this is my best attempt at what's going on here. And so now Moses is going to go down the mountain. He's going to go down the mountain with forgiveness of God. But there's also consequences. Now, it's not over with. Because here's the thing. God has now... Now, relented and repented. Remember, we always think of relent and repentance as like, I committed a sin, and now I'm repenting of it. But repentance in the Bible does not always mean a repenting of a sin. Repentance just means I'm, I'm going the opposite direction. So technically, I can say I'm on 270, and I miss my exit, and I turn around and come back. I've repented. And theologically, repentance can mean of sin or just of a direction you're going. So similarly, like your King James says, repented. NIV and stuff say relented. Don't, don't let that like, oh my gosh, God's repenting of sins. No, he's not. The word repentance doesn't always mean sin. It just means change of direction, okay, a change of path. So here's the thing. He's gone down with the forgiveness, but now there's going to be consequences. God has decided not to wipe them out. But he has not changed his mind, for lack of a better phrase, about no longer being their God. And you have to realize at this point now, God has said, I'm not going to dwell with you anymore. You're not going to build the tabernacle. And later when we get to chapter 34, God is going to say, I'm not going with you. And the angel is going to go with you instead. You're no longer my people. I will still honor my promises to Abraham, but they'll come through the angel. But you get no tabernacle. You get no glory of God. You get no covenant with me. I'm done. I can't dwell with that kind of a sin. I can forgive it, but I can't have a relationship with it. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Does he end up going with him in the land? Yes but that will be next week. But you need to understand that's where we are right now.